how to relate wisely with what's difficult. And that's not because any of you are having difficulty. Some are. Some haven't. And what we know about the path is that it's just a part of the landscape. It's part of what we awaken through. So last night, Jack described on the journey how Mara, these forces of difficulty, naturally arise, and it's our practice to face and be with. Now, what I'd like to do tonight, it would be a possibility to talk about the whole range of them, but rather I've chosen to speak just of a certain area, which is self-judgment, shame, feeling deficient, this cluster of self-aversion that, for many of us, give rise to the other difficult forces and are also a product of them. In fact, I've found when we look closely, we experience something called being shame-wedged. We get shame-wedged in. We experience something difficult. We feel bad about it. We feel bad about ourselves. That turns into something else. And there's whole chain reactivity that's surrounded by shame. Now, you might have noticed just in these two days together, there's been a lot of different weather for many of us in that we have a response of liking some things and not liking others. But there's another level of monitoring that's going on. And that level is exploring, how am I doing? How does this reflect on me as meditator? You know, we even ask the question in the interviews, how are you doing? You know, and it can be easy to get into a mode of evaluating things in terms of, well, I've been lost in thought or obsessed with food or sleeping too much, therefore I'm in bad meditator zone. How am I doing? You know, it's, um, it can be really helpful to have some view or idea about spiritual unfolding. But it can also serve to reinforce a sense of a deficient self that's not good enough and that's trying to get somewhere. A separate self that's missing something, that needs to improve. There's a story going around Washington, D.C., that a man went to Borders Bookstore and asked the clerk where the self-help section was. Her response was, now if I told you that, it would defeat the whole purpose, wouldn't it? Now, in a different flavor, listening, listening to Ramana Maharshi, there's no greater joke than this, that being the reality ourselves, we seek to gain reality. We think that there is something binding our reality and that it must be destroyed before the reality is gained. It is ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will yourself laugh at your effort. That, which is on the day of laughter, is also now. Yet we keep trying to improve in some way. So tonight, I'd like to talk about healing shame. I'd like to talk about awakening from this sense of a deficient self that needs to be better or more to be okay. And I think retreats are very powerful and wonderful times to do this exploration because as we get quiet, all the habits and patterns of self-judgment become much clearer. Our normal strategies of avoiding aren't quite so available, and we get to see how much judgment there is, and we get to begin to connect with the fear and the pain that's underneath that judgment. Carl Jung described at one point a maturing spirituality in these words. Described it as a shift from a journey toward perfection to a journey toward wholeness. This means that instead of climbing up a ladder to leave behind impurity, we turn to embrace the world in all its realness, broken, messy, vivid, alive. Embracing the weather, not 
trying to fix or change something. This shift in worldview from climbing up a ladder to embracing the world is really at the heart of all healing. A journey to wholeness or toward wholeness presumes, rests on the understanding that our innate nature is pure and whole, is perfect as is. It's a relaxing back into what is, not trying to get somewhere else. If there's struggle, if there's a sense that something's wrong that needs to be fixed, it reinforces uh, an inherent sense of deficiency. We're not okay as is. We have really strong conditioning towards the deficiency model. And my sense of what shame is, is it's that feeling of deficiency that comes up in relationship. It doesn't have to be with another person. It can be relating to ourself, but it's exposed. We are having to be face to face with the sense of defectiveness. And it's interesting that etymologically, the word shame means to cover. So not only is it self-aversion, but it's also the movement to cover what's wrong. And we avoid feeling shame, we avoid feeling defectiveness, because if felt fully, it's like feeling death. It's ego death. It's relational death. It makes us not want to exist. I'll give you an example now, just because about a week before I left for retreat, a woman, a client I'd been working with, and I'm a clinical psychologist, I don't know, not all of you know that, uh, one, of, one of my clients had been coming in around a relational breakup, and she and this man had had a mutual agreement that they would split, and she was feeling grief and loss, and it was difficult. But then, right before this last appointment, she had gone back to him and made it clear that she actually was available and really wanting to continue the relationship. She wanted him back. And he politely said no. Well, this manageable grief turned into intolerable shame. To understand that shift, like there was loss and it was really difficult at first, but to be exposed as needy, as wanting and not getting, that felt unbearable to her. She said, this one minute of exposure ruined everything. In some way, that defectiveness was impossible to really be with that sense of defectiveness. There's reasons why in that you know, Harvard study, some of you have heard of, when people were um, polled to see what they considered to be the worst possible experience. The number one experience above all others that they were afraid of was public speaking. You know that, right? Public speaking. Public speaking over nuclear holocaust. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Personal death was number four. <laughs> Being exposed as defective, number one. Because it's number one, we do the most to run from it. We do the most to cover it. We do the most to get away. It gets buried. Because it's number one, it has a huge effect on everything we do. And there's this basic understanding in the wisdom and healing traditions that what is unseen, what is buried, is the cause of our suffering and neurosis. That our suffering arises from those parts of our psyche that are unfelt, unrecognized. So this force of Mara, this force of aversion that we turn on ourselves is probably the most unrecognized and powerful cause of suffering that we experience in our daily life and in our spiritual practice. The sense of being incomplete, not okay. It's an area that asks for a deep and compassionate attention. But first we have to be able to even recognize it. So as we investigate tonight a bit, I'd like to start by talking about the source 
of self-aversion, how come? How come it's so pervasive that we walk around with a sense of not okay? How come? I'd like to talk about how it hides, because when we can start noticing how it hides, the strategies of covering, we can begin to soften and open to what's there. And then how to bring into awareness and embrace what we discover. The Buddha described our suffering in its root form to be caused by a sense of being a separate self. That if we feel separate, if we're under that impression that we're separate, there's a vulnerability, a need, a fear to protect and defend and grasp and hold. The whole world of grasping and aversion arises out of this sense of being separate. Now, the fear and the wanting that arise out of a sense of separation are biologically wired into us. The fear that something's wrong with us, that we're incomplete and deficient, is biologically wired in. I'll read you a bit. This is uh, in Wes Nisker's most recent book, Buddha's Nature. We are designed to be dissatisfied, uneasy, to stand ready and alert in order to survive. It appears this survival brain is always trying to anticipate negative situations, looking ahead, rehearsing for disasters. That is useful for a long life, if you call that living. And then some of you know there's the story of the Jewish mother who sends her son a telegram and it says, Start worrying. Details to follow. (laughs) (laughs) So we're primed in this way. We're primed to worry and to plan, and underneath that to sense something's missing, I need something more, to be on the alert for what's wrong. And because our survival is so relationally based, the anticipated disaster is that we'll be rejected, lost loss of connectedness. The reason for rejection, something's wrong with me. This is a primary, primal kind of screen we have. Even if we're blaming outward, there's still underneath that a sense of insufficiency, insecurity. So this not-okay selfness, the sense of a deficient self with its primal mood of fear, it's very basic, is really the ground of all the other forms of self-aversion and aversion outward. Something's wrong with me. Now, any identification we have at all with a sense of separate self gets shadowed with this fear and this wanting. Kabir writes, We sense that there is some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, perhaps the same one who gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is, you turned away yourself and decided to go into the dark alone, and now you are tangled up in others and have forgotten who you are, and that's why, on those days, everything has some weird sense of failure in it. Kabir says, Why not remember who you are? Today is a good day to do it. So we forget our nature. We get attached or contracted around the sense of being separate, vulnerable, not okay. It's very biological. And then the quality of our self-aversion, the type, the storyline, develops with our personal experiences with our parents and our culture. Lily Tomlin did a one-woman show in Washington, D.C. It ran for quite a while. And one of her characters was the archetype, almost, of a shame-based figure. One great line, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. Most everyone I know in our personal histories has had the experience of 
disappointment and betrayal and being wounded, of wanting something to work out, intimacy with mother, father, family, friends, and not having it work out. So most people I know carry with them in that woundedness a sense of something's wrong with me. And it ranges from being uncomfortable and creating tension and something we work with and and discover a way of healing around to being really toxic and crippling. Crippling because the effect of chronic shame is to pull us back from life and from any possibility of intimacy. It's impossible to be intimate when we've turned on ourselves in a deep way. It's too unsafe. It's too unsafe to open. Now, because I'm a clinical psychologist, I've been exploring you know, what of Western psychology's take on shame and on affects is useful in spiritual practice. And I'll just give you a few definitions I think are helpful in making it less personal, because this is universal, that we have this, this wiring to turn on ourselves. First of all, shame is considered to be the most recent affect to develop through the process of evolution. Uh, Western psychology has identified a handful of affects, you know, fear and anger and interest and joy, and shame is the most recent, but it's genetically wired and programmed in. The earlier affects appear in reptiles, and they're all stored in the reptilian brain, that part of our own brain. Said that when we become aware of an affect, it becomes a feeling. And that the function of these affects are to move us, to draw our attention to what's happening and move us either towards pleasure or away from pain. So again, this isn't something that's wrong with us that we do that. We're wired to. An affect that's known becomes a feeling. A feeling that is combined with thoughts, with memories, becomes an emotion. An emotion that's sustained becomes a mood. That's just a few definitions. The bottom line one, that the sense of deficiency that comes with shame is universal to all humans that have been interviewed. (laughs) When it's full-blown, the sense of self-aversion is to pull us away from what might have satisfied our wants and needs. It's as if there's this message that it's too dangerous to pursue one's wants. It's too dangerous to feel alive. There's a shutting down of aliveness. Play it safe. Don't expose yourself. This is shame. Guilt is sensing that there's something wrong with behavior. Shame, deep self-aversion, there's something wrong with me, with the sense of self. Because we've all been wounded, the degree ranges, but when there's a lot of self-aversion, we can see in retreat when we try to practice metta what happens. With deep self-aversion, it feels pretty impossible. It feels impossible to receive love from ourselves or from other people because we're so convinced of defectiveness. And because we've been hurt before, it's too dangerous. So there's kind of a quality of physical armoring against letting the words of kindness into our hearts in any real way. So I described that the experience can often be shame-wedged, that we can have an unpleasant experience come up, and we might want to offer metta to ourselves. Fear comes up, but instead, what happens? There's something wrong with me for having fear. I'm not a good enough meditator. There's something insufficient. And we layer on to what we experience Something's wrong with me. Then it makes it impossible to feel kind or compassionate. In Pali, there's a word papancha. It has to do with this proliferation, this basic experience of encountering something that's either pleasant or unpleasant and immediately slapping on a sense of self and frequently a sense of self that's deficient. We experience pleasant or unpleasant There's grasping, aversion, there's something wrong with me. And then it can spiral out, spin out into a whole chain reaction of difficult emotions. 
I'd like to tell you a story of, for me, what was probably the most revealing experience in this kind of uh, spinning out. For a number of years, I was chronically sick and um, went to a three-month retreat in the midst of that. And I was kind of bracing myself just to see how I'd feel. And true to form, the chronic unpleasant sensations kept arising. And I found that I sunk into a depression. And then when I started looking more closely, what would happen was an unpleasant sensation would arise, and there would be fear and contraction. And then slapped onto that, this means I'm not such a spiritual person. I'm not a good meditator. This is going to go on for the rest of my life. What does this reflect about my inner balance that I'm creating this pain? You know, the whole conundrum of how it reflected on bad personhood. You understand? Just a simple unpleasant sensation proliferated into something's wrong with me, which then went into depression. And then that feeling of depression, of just low life energy, reified even a deeper sense of something's wrong with me, shame. It was shame-wedged. Shame, depression, shame. It wasn't very quick because depression is one of those energies that it makes it hard to explore things. But when I began to sense how I had turned against myself, when I realized how much judgment was swirling around, that was kind of what cracked it open. To sense that dukkha of self-judgment made me feel softer towards the experience. And I began to be able to simply connect with, okay, unpleasantness, and feel in a much more direct and immediate way just this, and just this. And then when the tendency to say something's wrong with me would come, I started getting used to that and going, ah, kind of the self was born again, a deficient self. Ah, noticing that coming right back in a very immediate way, just unpleasant, difficult, unpleasant, without the spinning out. This tendency to spin out and make ourselves wrong for our experience causes tremendous suffering. So it's the grounds of healing to begin to recognize this proliferation, to sense when it's happening. And what makes it difficult is we have all these strategies to cover it up. We don't want to feel directly that sense of deficiency or defectiveness. So I'll mention briefly the primary strategies that we see both at retreat and home, because we were pretty consistent in the way we do these things. They all come under the categories of fight or flight, fighting our sense of defectiveness or fleeing from it. With flight, the first dimension is withdrawal, that when we start feeling bad about ourselves, we withdraw from our own sensitivities. We shut down our awareness. Depression. We also can withdraw from other people. When there's a lot of sense of of shame, the withdrawal can be felt in retreats of not wanting to be seen walking, seen by other people. There can be an extreme self-consciousness in the dining hall. There's a sense of something's really wrong with me and everybody's picking it up. And instead of being felt as shame, it might be just sensed as anxiety. And there's a tendency to not want to be around, to withdraw. Another way that we respond to that sense of being deficient is to try to avoid it by attaching to pride projects. This is where the self-improvement regimes come in, to our self-esteem projects. Here at retreat, it gets to be trying to look good. It's not necessarily trying to be in the present moment. There's a concern around how we look to others, and we are very aware, again, with walking, of of trying to look good. And I I confess, I mean, I know so many times that I wasn't just, you know, lifting, placing, lifting, placing. There was a mental, on my mental screen, a sense of how other people were perceiving my slow and balanced and graceful (laughs) walking, you know. And it often wasn't that, but, you know, then it was shame because it wasn't that. (laughs) But you understand, there's this self-consciousness around these pride projects of looking good, eating a certain way. And it's not just to really be there for the taste. It's because of that same self-consciousness of wanting to look good. 
these pride projects we attach to in our life in a big way. And we all know it, where we get attached around looking a certain way physically, having a certain appearance, our intelligence, how many degrees we have, how successful or accomplished we are. When I was out at Spirit Rock, a friend read this little piece from one of the Marin newspapers. And it's a description of some people that were interviewing potential um, housemates. This time, our, this is Marin, by the way, if that means anything to you. This time, our candidate was a wiry, hostile woman named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps wearing a skin-tight spandex bodysuit and illuminated wrist weights. <laughs> Throughout our meeting, she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. What do you do, Naomi, we asked her. These days, she told us, I'm mainly doing my butt. Once you pass 35, <laughs> if you let your butt go for a minute, you might as well just pull over to the side of the road and die. <laughs> so it's interesting to reflect which are the projects that we <laughs> attach to. The more the deficiency, the more we need to compensate. And as I mentioned, it extends to areas we deeply value. Things we love and cherish, because they're mixed with the sense of deficiency, we, we latch on. Being a people helper, which is so beautiful. It's part of the, the bodhisattva vow to be of benefit, and yet we're attached to helping, to redeem us in some way, from some sense of not being okay being a spiritual type or a committed good yogi, a good teacher, whatever it is, this, this need to be worthy is one that deserves attention. Because as long as a part of our energy is coming from there, it reinforces a sense that we're not okay as is. This worthiness project in meditation becomes very clear when we have what we call bad meditations. It becomes really clear our investment in being a good meditator, um, especially after we've been sitting for a while. Several years ago, I remember sitting at a retreat and having an unusual amount of obsessive thinking, a whole lot, and, um, and realizing every time I'd realize thinking, thinking, I'd feel this clutching in my heart, this real fear and anxiety, and underneath that, the shame that I'd been off again and for so long. And, and I started paying attention to it, and there was this story that, well, if I'm thinking this much, <coughs> it really means I'll never be a real or a good meditator. And this whole sense of shame about being good enough in the practice was there, and it was really a clutch in the heart. Every time I'd recognize thinking, I'd feel this kind of anxiety. So the practice for me became to notice thinking and just right away relax, open my heart, and just feel what was there. Being good. Because we can't avoid shame, we go to the, the most basic strategy of all, and that is to try not to make mistakes. And that's a really big one. And, and again, the more sense of deficiency, the more tightly wrapped our life gets around not doing things wrong, not making a mistake, being good at everything. My son, who's 12 years old, um, for whatever his insecurities, is very reticent about trying things. And there was some activity, I was trying to get him to check out a few months ago, and in response he quoted Homer, Homer Simpson, this is Homer Simpson. <laughs> Do you want to hear? <laughs> he said, trying is the first step to failure. <laughs> when we mistrust our essential self, we worry about mistakes. It becomes a really deep thing. And it's why we sometimes get so much relief when people's foibles are revealed. It doesn't last long. We get tired of it, right? But at first, people's mistakes um, are kind of a relief. You know, I'm not the only one. I'm not imperfect. We like secrets exposed. I'll tell you my best shame story. 
uh, or one of them, but it's one that I always get a little embarrassed telling, especially at retreats, but I'll tell you anyway. And in this one, <laughs> I'm setting you up. <laughs> in this one, a man was talking to his best friend, and he was writhing in, in embarrassment. He said, I just really blew it. I was at the office, and I was talking to my secretary, and I'm very attracted to her, and she asked me how the weather was outside, and I said, oh, it's kind of nipply out. And then, oh, oh my God, you know, I felt horrified, you know, very ashamed. So his friend said, oh, don't worry, really don't worry. It's called a Freudian slip, and we all do it. We all do it. In fact, just the other day, I was having breakfast with my wife, and I meant to say, please pass the sugar, and instead I said, you damn bitch, you've ruined my life. Now again, the word shame means to cover. And whatever we're covering pops out in different ways. Sometimes it pops out in physical sickness. Sometimes in kind of backwards ways with people or hitting them sideways, passive, aggressive. But it comes out. So these are kind of flags of when we're holding under something. One of the last areas of avoiding shame I'll mention is what Freud described as palliative remedies, that we we buffer the feelings of defectiveness or deficiency by in some way feeding ourselves. Sometimes it's the over-consuming of food. Sometimes it's alcohol. Sexuality can be used to feel competent or wanted. So we have these buffers, these activities to not feel so bad about ourselves. And it's been discovered recently that one of the functions of Prozac actually is to reduce feelings of deficiency, the anxiety around deficiency. And um, it can be a really wonderful thing when there's toxic shame. It's wonderful for a number of different conditions, but it's one of the things that actually alleviates some of the toxicity. One man describes, I took three X-lax with my Prozac this morning. I've been on the John all day, but I feel good about it. So we take things to feel better about ourselves. And then there's the workaholism, there's the non-stop doing. And we come to retreat, and what happens? Some of this stuff is taken from us. We can't do the workaholic. Some of the consumption, the alcohol, the drugs, that kind of thing, are taken from us. All, All sorts of strategies are taken away, so what are we left with? We can eat too much food. We can sleep more than we might need to. The big one, the one that we seem to go to the most, is the judging. We keep our mind busy. We judge, and judging seems like it's self-aversion, but it actually protects us from feeling the pain directly. Because judging is in service of trying to, well, if I notice it, maybe I can fix it. I can make myself better. It's one of our major strategies. Oscar Wilde describes it like this. There is luxury in self-reproach, when we blame ourselves, we feel no one else has the right to blame us. So our judging is, is a control strategy. We try to fix ourselves. We prevent other people from attacking first. We want to have the bad news out. Judging's a big one, although sometimes you'll find the, that the mind goes towards judging outward, towards blaming outwardly, and it happens at retreat as much as anywhere else. With yogi mind, it can be the blaming, well, I'm not able to have the perfect meditation now because this person here is coughing or moving around too much or someone else is creating a traffic jam by walking too slowly in the passageways that are, you know, are the teachers are talking too long or too short or something. I had a student at a retreat a few months ago This was out in rural Virginia, who just kept telling me that she could not come into presence because there was too much noise. This was a silent retreat. (laughs) But she fixated on it, you know. So what we find is if we externalize the blame, if we say something's wrong out there, that's probably when we have the smallest chance of really facing 
the sense of insecurity or deficiency that's within us. A really big part of practice is to recognize judging mind, outward, going outward or going inward, and dropping under. So in healing shame, I, you might have noticed I haven't mentioned the name of one of the great shame gurus, and that's John Bradshaw. Um, so I'll tell you this. There's a picture here with two bears, and they're talking to each other, and this little guy is, being, is hanging up on a tree. And it says, and the bears are saying, his name's Bradshaw. He says he understands I came from a single parent den with inadequate role models. He senses that my dysfunctional behavior is shame-based and codependent, and he urges me to let my inner cub heal. I say we eat him. (laughs) I purposely spent time describing the strategies that we use to avoid, because as I mentioned earlier, What is unseen and unfelt in our psyche is what keeps causing suffering. And there's a deep identification with a deficient self. And we use these strategies not to feel it. So paying attention, we find out what happens, as I mentioned before, is we're incapable of intimacy if we're caught in these strategies, in being busy and in judging and avoiding. There's not a sense of being real. So many have that imposter syndrome where there's that experience of um, the real authentic me is not going to be seen and I need to cover it for whatever reason. It's said that dying starts at birth and accelerates at dinner parties. (laughs) (laughs) Not feeling real. It's an awful feeling. And then at retreat, what happens? When we're in some way trying to look good or avoid feeling something, we cannot connect or be intimate with our moments. I, about three months ago, did a cable TV show with An Hung, who's the niece of Thich Nhat Hanh, and we didn't have practically any time to prepare for it. We were asked last minute, and we had no time to prepare with each other. So we got there, and it was very hot, and things got delayed, and I just kind of spaced out into this sense of, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know why I'm here, and you know, just really kind of negative and feeling basically not connected with any sense of uh, dharma. So I I started speaking, and I just felt this, like I was going through the motions, which was made me feel even kind of more tight. At one point during it, uh, she sang a song. Many of you probably know this. It's that mantra, breathing in, breathing out. I am blooming as a flower. This is one of the mantras that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches. And she was singing, and that was fine. Her son, who was six, was in the audience. And all of a sudden, he broke into song with her. (laughs) And not only did he sing, he did the hand, there's these hand motions with it, breathing in, breathing out. And he did it with the zeal, and he was really real in it. He was sincere. He was totally excited. And there was something about seeing his genuine enthusiasm that just reminded me of my own sincerity. It kind of reconnected me with my aspiration, just to be real with what was. And for a moment, I just felt the kind of the tensions and so on, and then connected more deeply to uh, just being there with Anhung and in the process. And it was so uh, rejuvenating. It's a painful process to get disconnected. And that sense of deficiency, something's wrong with me, disconnects us from aliveness. So the challenge and the question that comes up then is, if we recognize, if we begin to see, okay, there's that something's wrong with me feeling, that not okay feeling, how do we bring a kind attention, a healing to that. And as a first kind of um, way to address that, to say that because so much of our sense of deficiency gets amplified and grooved in in our relationships, a lot of our healing needs to be in relationships. It's part of what we offer to each other as friends is that mirroring of you're not only really okay, but kind of bowing, seeing the divine in each other. 
It's part of the beauty of 12-step and similar type groups of the kind of the sharing of the secrets and of the feelings of deficiency, sharing despair, and holding a container that is kind and safe. That's healing. What we're doing here is cultivating the awareness that can bring that to all parts of our life, that we can cultivate the capacity to recognize what's true and hold with care moment after moment, that we can bring that into our relationships with others and hold it and maintain it in our relationship with our own being. And we start with what presents. I focus tonight on what presenting as that feeling of something's wrong with me. But sometimes it presents as anger. Sometimes that vulnerability is just presenting fully as a rage. Or it might be just pure fear. Or it might be grasping or clinging or obsessive wanting. Any of these forces of Mara that present are the perfect grounds for waking up, for becoming intimate with ourselves in that moment. We begin by recognizing. And for many, it helps to note or name by really affixing a label with in a friendly note. Okay, fear, fear, anger, hurting, grieving. We begin with that. Rumi writes, the pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself, and this pain will make you go behind the veil. When we look, when we recognize the dukkha, we go beyond the veil of illusion when we really see it. Many people I know, some of the most profound moments of healing, turning points, was recognition of how pervasive the sense of deficiency and self-judgment is, how much pain that causes. I remember when I was in college and I was on some sort of a trip with a friend and and she said to me at one point, you know, really it's all about being your own best friend. And many of you, you know, that's a cliche almost, being your own best friend. It is a cliche. But for some reason, what it did was it revealed to me how much I was the furthest thing from that. And I broke down and cried and cried. But it was, I mean, I still remember it clearly, that sense of just how far I was from being genuinely friendly to myself. Our practice is to develop this unconditional friendliness. But it starts with the dukkha very often. It starts with the dukkha, which means discomfort or pain of whatever is appearing in that moment, and it needs to be felt in the body. Joko Beck writes, we have to face the pain we have been running from. In fact, we need to learn to rest in it and let its searing power transform us. So judging comes up, judging, judging. And then there's this feeling, okay, what's really asking for attention, for acceptance? And under that, a deep sense of aversion and fear. Our practice is to rest in that, to open to, to feel fully just what's presenting in our body. With practice, we can allow the energy of the emotion, the feeling of it, the quality of what we're feeling to pierce us right to the heart. But it's a kind of piercing that sounds painful, but it's actually what opens up the heart of compassion. You know, compassion means being with. So when we can be with fully, really open fully to the pain of deficiency, to the fear, to the hurt, it opens up our heart. We become that open space of awareness. Sometimes part of our practice that can really make this possible is the intentional cultivation of friendliness, of metta, of compassion. In other words, sometimes rather than saying, okay, fear, just feel the fear directly, the cultivation of of open-heartedness, of compassion can be done in an intentional way to make room, to soften, so that we can be with what's there. And it can happen in a lot of ways. We're practicing here the, the metta practice of offering words 
of kindness from our heart to our heart to each other. And this practice can make room so that we have the capacity or the container to feel fully in our body what's there. The Dalai Lama was approached by one man who said he was gripped by fear. And his suggestion was, just let yourself be held in the arms of the Buddha. You know, we think we have to do it all by ourselves to sense and feel and invoke the presence of the beloved in whatever way we do it. The arms of the Buddha, of the Bodhisattva, the heart of the Bodhisattva, and let ourselves rest in that. The more moments that we directly recognize, that we start right where we are and recognize what's arising and feel fully in our body, the more sense of intimacy, of opening out of deficiency. And when there's less and less layers of personal deficiency, we begin to sense the contraction that arises with any sense of self at all. It becomes a very subtle and very real process of incredible presence. To practice, to see what's there, to relax our hearts, to let go into, to feel fully. The starting place is just this moment, whatever's arising this moment, because it's all right here. We've experienced in the last two days the unpleasant sensations in the body, the pleasantness that we try to hold on to, the moods that are difficult, the wanting, the fearing. I began the talk by describing the sense of this ladder that sometimes we get into the illusion that we're climbing to be better, to be a better meditator, to be a better self, and how really our freedom comes in this practice of embracing what is. I'd like to end by uh, sharing with you an image that was offered by Pema Chodron in one of her books. In the process of discovering the awakening heart, that's bodhicitta, the journey goes down, not up. It's as if the mountain pointed toward the center of the earth. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move through the insecurity and the pain, the shame, the fear, and we try not to push it away. At our own pace, we move down and down and down. With us move millions of others, our companions in awakening from fear. At the bottom, we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. We discover the love that will not die. The awakening through shame is the awakening into our natural being, which is loving, which is wakeful, which is free. Let's close by sitting a bit together. And as you establish yourself and establish a sense of presence, sense if there are any holdings. If there's any way that you're struggling against physical sensations, if there's any moods, anything unforgiven from today, from earlier, or you're holding against yourself. And let this be moments of releasing the grip, of seeing and letting go, directly connecting with what is true, with an open and compassionate awareness.
This is Rumi. When I see you and how you are, I turn my eyes away from the other. For your Solomon seal, I become wax throughout my body. I wait to be light. I give up opinions on all matters. I become the reed flute for your breath. You were inside my hand, but I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand, but I kept asking questions of those who know very little. I must have been incredibly simple, or drunk, or insane, to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables, but no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.